In the following live session recording, Kimberly B. Moore, CEO and owner of Moore Tax LLC of Bloomingdale, Georgia, leads the session entitled Best Practices, Receipt and Protection of Church Contributions, Part 2. In this class, the listener will learn some best practices when receiving and protecting contributions given to the church, ensuring that funds received are accounted for and are deposited intact and whole. Part 1 focused on contribution receipts, while this session, Part 2, will focus on protection of the church in dealing with contributions. Let's join Kimberly now. Okay, everybody's heard my spill, but you, so... An enrolled, I am an enrolled agent, and what that is, do you know what an enrolled agent is? It's a, it's a tax professional that is licensed by the federal government. So it's the IRS, Department of Treasury, is who I'm licensed by. Um, CPAs have to get their licenses from each state. So in order for them to do tax returns and work as a CPA in Georgia, they have to pass the test and be licensed in the state of Georgia. Enrolled agents don't have to be. Enrolled agents are, are federally licensed, so we work all over the state, all over the United States. So, in a certified fraud examiner and certified forensic interviewer, the certified forensic interviewer, interviewer um, designation helps tremendously with my fraud examinations because during fraud examinations, I have to interview people. And... Um, in, in the classes and the, the everything to take the test for the CFI, you learn people's mannerisms and their body language and stuff like that. So if you're asking them a question and they're saying yes, but their head is doing this, then the answer is no. Regardless of what's coming out the mouth, the body reacts subliminally. So that's really cool. It, it helps tremendously in telling if you need to ask more questions, if you need to take the questions in a different direction, those types of things. It helps tremendously. It also helps with law enforcement. So if there's ever a case where something bad happens and, and there is clearly theft and it's reported, then a CFI is better inside the courts for expert witness to help explain to the judge what has happened. Okay? So this morning, you weren't in it this morning, but um, the class pretty much was over, contributions and counting and that type of thing. We're going to get a little deeper on this one. I didn't turn it off. Yeah. Okay, we're going to get a little bit deeper on this. You might want to come over here if you can't see. Because Mr. Lee here, he, he moved from over there to over here. <laughs> he couldn't see. Um, this is best practices protecting contributions given to church, specifically designated funds. And I'm going to get a lot deeper in some explanations. So this is true or false. Is it okay for all contributions, general ties, and designated funds to be maintained in the same operating account? False. False. It's not best practice. It's not illegal. Okay? It's best practice. Number two, one trustworthy person handling all financial needs is adequate. How many times does that happen? Anybody have it happening now in your church? 
to where one person is handling the deposits, the posting, writing checks, paying bills. <coughs> That's good. Is it okay to borrow funds from a designated fund and pay it back later? No. 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 Correct. Is it okay for all contributions, generalized and designated funds, to be maintained in the same account operating? True or false? Is it okay? Is it legal or is it, are you asking me if it's legal? See, you're getting into semantics. Okay. The point of this is best practice. Okay, that's the best practice. Okay. Best practice is it should not be in the same account. And I do not recommend it at all, period. They should be two separate accounts. It's okay for it to flow through the operating account and then end up in the designated. Standards. Have separate bank accounts for general and designated. The best practice is to follow the same standard for every receipt of funds, counting procedures, depositing those funds in a timely manner and posting those funds. Um, one of my clients, a church, who I still help, I've helped for about two years now, because they don't have many financial helpers, what I've gotten them to do, they've actually hired me to where monthly I do their bank statement reconciliations and I determine how much needs to be sent over to designate it. And by doing that, it's how much they actually send me their deposits every month. And then I do what accountants call write-up. Okay? Understand what write-up is. Um, write-up is they, they handle all the activity, and then I just do the end-of-month stuff and make it hit the accounts right. Okay? So they send me uh, weekly a cash deposit listing of who gave money in cash, and then I can actually go online with their bank and look at the deposit detail. So I have every check that was deposited and all that kind of stuff. And they're required to put, if it's a designated fund, in the memo section of that check, because it clears the bank, it's a legal document. If there's a designated fund, then they put it in the memo section of that person's check. And then I can post it to that designated fund. They deposit all their money into the general account. And because of those particular checks having designated on there, it may be divided out $80 here, $10 here, $100 general, okay? So I do that separation. I post it on the books, and then at the bottom, because I've got it as other income into those separate things, then the total gets transferred over to designated. So I'll tell them every month how much they need to transfer from general to designated. Okay? I have no transactional authority whatsoever. Okay? So, and then I prepare their monthly financials and their bank reconciliations and send an entire management report to them that has the bank statement in there, the activity for the entire month, the computerized printout, and their financials. Balance sheet and, and most churches don't look at balance sheet, but the finance committee and the treasurer needs to look at a balance sheet, okay? Does any, do y'all know what a balance sheet has on it? Do you understand what a balance sheet is? Because most people don't. I mean, it's no big deal. You understand? 
It has the assets and the liabilities on it. And then your profit and loss, which for nonprofits is considered a statement of financial activity, or the balance sheet is called a statement of financial position, okay, for nonprofits. <clears throat> so the profit and loss is actually your budget, basically, okay? So any money that's given for designated funds is outside the budget. So like love offerings, that's a designated fund, supposedly, but how many times do love offerings actually exceed, the expenses exceed the deposits? Pretty common. So you get singers, you, get, you bring in singers or whatever, and they have a flat fee, but you collect a love offering for those singers. And usually, it's been my experience, that the singer's fee is actually more than what you actually collect. So you can't really put that in designated funds. It's an in and out. So what we've done with this particular church, because it's an in and out and the church pulls, you know, takes care of the remaining balance, everything runs through the general account so that you don't have the chance of overdrafting the designated. So the only part that gets sent to the designated is the part that's a positive. Make sense? I think I lost some people. When you say the part that is a positive, mm -hmm. are you saying the amount that you actually collected as the love offering? No, you post that to the general account which is at the bottom, it says other income, it's not part of your budget income. So it's at the bottom, very bottom, that's other income. And then there's ins expenses that come out of that. So let's say you collect $400 and your expenses are 200 So the 200 that's left in there will get moved to designated funds. Okay. But if it's a negative, then you need to decide either get a church approval or you already have a benevolence fund or some type of fund that's set up in your budget to offset that other 200. Make sense? Mm -hmm. That way you don't have a chance of overdrafting any of your designated funds because that's against the rules. Okay? Does that help you out with understanding how to flow it through? Depositing all funds, all funds intact, copy all checks. A lot of churches don't do this. And I don't know why, because this is a basic bookkeeping uh, method, is when you're making a deposit, that you copy everything that's included in that deposit and maintain a record of it. Um, that's just standard bookkeeping. Um, but I've seen so many churches that don't do that. And that, that bothers me because it's hard for you to go back. And if somebody says, well, I gave this amount, but you're only showing this amount. How do you go back and research it if you don't have copies? We keep the envelopes. But the envelope may say something completely different than the check. And if you don't have a copy of the check, how can you verify that the envelope is correct? Bank statement. We have but the copies of all checks on the bank statements. Not deposits. Not the backup to the deposits. You see what I mean? Oh, you're, you're, you're talking about their check. Okay. Correct. Their check. So that... That's what they have to bring it in. And if there's an error, but... 
So, so you're saying, in essence, that we physically have a copy of the of each check that we deposit. Yeah. Um, basically, what it is is it's you make a copy of the deposit slip. You've got the counting, you weren't in the first one, so we have a counting sheet where the counters actually count the money. Right. You have the deposit slip, a copy of the deposit slip. Most people have the yellow copy of the bank deposit, and it's encoded on the back that it's been deposited. And then behind that, you have the checks that are copied, and you can line them up for however many will fit on that one sheet of paper. So if you have 10 checks, you can line up three here and one here and have four sheets of paper that's attached to it to prove that deposit. Checks are legal documents. The envelopes are not legal documents. So if the check says general funds and, you, and the envelope says designated funds, if it was challenged in court, the check would win. Okay? So how some of these churches have got thousands of checks coming in? There's some guys going crazy up there trying to copy the checks. That's just some check some people are going to check readers. We've we've got, we we've got an encoder, we encode all all of ours. So. so then you've got the canceled check right there with you. We used to do See, they don't have to make copies because they got the actual check, which is even better, but you have to stamp it that it's been processed. Because you've got to hook up to the bank, to the reader. We just made that transition because of uh, specific problems with a couple of checks missing in deposits that were accounted for on our end of physical inventory. But when it got to the bank, and we had, again, we had no way of proving our point exactly exactly I was a county of course this I won't tell how many years yeah. but many many years ago I was a county manager at a large law firm and um, our accounting department I was responsible for 10 other people and part of this the standard was to copy all the checks that got deposited and a copy of the deposit slip, and then when the receipt came back from the bank, you attach it to that and move on. I wouldn't. I can't tell you how many times that bank called me because they lost the proof for that deposit and asked if I had copies of the checks. Sure, I do. You want me to email it to you? Would you please? Absolutely. Because they can use a copy of a check just like it was a regular check. Hence, mobile deposits and stuff like that. My brother the other day, he wanted, he wanted, um, he owed me $50 to, to do something for our, our family. And um, he said, I don't have a check with me right now. He said, I'll go home and write you a check and I'll take a picture of it and send it to you and you can clear that. I said, oh no. He said, why not? It's the same thing as mobile deposit. Technically, yes, but no. Because I don't have the physical check to prove that I mobile deposited and I had your signature. And he was like really rampant on me. I said, sorry, sorry, not going to happen. I'll get to it next time I come by. It's just $50, you know. Um, when you start making those justifications, even the tiniest, 
little justification. Well, yeah, you're right. And if it feels wrong, don't do it. Period. Um, if the contributor designates a portion of the contribution to a designated fund, ensure procedures are documented to explain how to handle this. All churches need to explain in their policies and procedures how this is to be handled. Okay. It's best to have it in your written procedures for every type of situation you can think of. And have it to where um, some people have it written in their bylaws. I don't agree with it, the details being written in the bylaws. I agree with the, the statement in the bylaws that says, see the policy, the accounting policy and procedures for handling this. So that the policy and procedures, the accounting policies and procedures can be updated on a regular basis without having to go change the bylaws. Because changing the bylaws are huge. Changing accounting practices should be close to every year because you have new technology coming out every year. And what should happen and what shouldn't happen. Okay, and the treasurer should not should not be a counter, absolutely should not be a counter, should not be um, handling the money, the contributions coming in. Um, and I would recommend that somebody be assigned to take that deposit to the bank that's not a counter. So segregation of duties is yes. to make sure that it doesn't, you know, no opportunity for... That makes sense. Or a sealed bag. A sealed bag. But that costs extra with the bank because you have to buy their sealed bags and you have to have a bigger night deposit, things like that. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. And you weren't here. I'll, I'll, if you'll leave me your email address, I'll send you my first presentation that states about the counters and signing the counter should initial and a bunch of other stuff. Yes. Um, oversight and accountability. Oh, I'm sorry. Best practice. You know, I told you about that one church where we transfer out monthly for designated funds. So, because there's only two people that are um, the treasurer and the assistant treasurer, and they need that segregation of duties. So instead of having to a hundred dollar check that needs to go into the designated fund to pay the lawn maintenance for the cemetery you know they're writing it they're depositing it at the bank and then they're writing it right back out that's way too much they get confused and they'll put it in the wrong bank account and a bunch of other stuff and it's it's over their head so we make it as simple as possible and you can adjust it based on your needs and your your capability as long as there's segregation of duties. Oversight and accountability. Monthly review all deposits comparing each to corresponding bank statement. Um, there's been um, many times that the bank deposit was posted in the system does not match the actual deposit slope that I've seen. Okay, and that shouldn't happen. It really shouldn't. And what happens when you um, 
for the best practice, if you're actually separating your bank accounts, it actually prevents accidental commingling of funds. We kept saying misappropriation, misappropriation. Commingling of funds is misappropriation. Okay, whenever you mingle somebody, let's say you pay for the lawn maintenance and you take it out of Annie Armstrong. Is that commingling funds? Mm -hmm. yes. It is. So that's still misappropriation. <coughs> Accidental, but it's still. Ensure all, it ensures all designated funds are financially supported with cash immediately available, required by the rules and regulations of the IRS. Which that's the reason I explained that, that the, you have to have enough in your bank account to um, cover the designated funds because you should never use it unless it's for that designated fund. Um, some people actually use deposit directly into their designated account. And in doing so, you would use the exact same procedures you used for the general account. You shouldn't change procedures based on purpose. You should have the same ones. And anything that's deposited in that deposit, you should have supporting documentation to prove it in case the bank asks or anything like that. Um, can I get you to can I get you to go back one? Um, I have a question on the previous screen with regard to um, if contributor designates a portion of the contribution to a designated fund. Okay, so here's an issue that that uh, trying to wrap my head around. You have a member that is no longer active. They're sick. They're in a nursing home. Their children are paying to maintain their active contribution status. But if I capture the data, I'm capturing the data of the child instead of the parent. So when that parent passes, then they may have to incur an expense if they're not an active member of the church in order to be buried. You follow what I'm saying? So how do we maintain, this is a question, that's, that's the convoluted uh, in game. So your bylaws state that they have to be active, not just a member? They have to be an active member, mm. good standing. I think you might need to check on changing the bylaws because if they're physically incapable of coming, they're still active. As active as they can be. Exactly. It's based on contributions. No, that shouldn't be. Nothing should be based on contributions. That's between them and the Lord. So if the bylaws don't support that, so this is something that, that that's that's this kind of stuff. You have to give. Okay, let's kind of say let's say I own a business. Okay, my business pays the church a tithe. Okay. Okay. Do you post it in my name or the business name? Your name. Wrong. Must go in well, the business whatever, whatever, whatever name is on the check. Is on the check Correct. It's what we capture. Correct. A lot of people get that confused as well. Okay. A lot of That's people will say, "Well, it goes to the it goes to the owner, which is Jim Smith, and it may be ABC Liquor Store, 
bad choice. (laughs) ABC Nursing Home, okay? They own ABC Nursing Home, okay? ABC Nursing Home gives a contribution, $100, $200, pretty regularly, too. But Jim Smith said, that that's my company. Go ahead and post it to mine. Do you follow what he says, or do you? He could be claiming it as a deduction for him and Mm -hmm. writing it off against his business, too, and trying to get a double count on it that way. And and, and the church would be facilitating him by lying and putting him by his personal name. But we're we're not here to to assess his his intentions, right? The contribution came from the business, not ABC Nursing Home. Does one supersede the other? So if the check name, is a legal document, right? But if the name of the business, as well as the person's name, it's the business. Okay. It's the business. Okay. Because even with a business return, they can still get that deduction. I mean, it just flows over to their personal return. But they don't have the capability of getting the double hit. That's great. That's great information for me. Okay. We went through that last question, last mm-hmm. session. You probably didn't hear it, but it says, we don't have a problem. This is a statement that I get from a lot of churches. We don't have a problem. We don't need to ask questions. That wouldn't be good for the church. There's also another statement I've, I always hear, and I, I didn't put it up here because I'm so sick of hearing it. Well, we've never done it that way. It's never been a problem in the past. Why should we do it when the government doesn't do it? Because... IRS rules and regulations for nonprofit organizations and for religious organizations, churches in specific, they actually have it. They have to follow GAAP. GAAP is a generally accepted accounting principle that is standard. Government can't keep their records in order. Why do we have to keep our records in order? <laughs> I'm just saying what I was told to by a deacon. Say, let's see if that works for you in court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're answering for higher power. That's right. Come on. Try that individually and see how it works. <laughs> <laughs> if um, it works for you, then we'll try it for sure. Okay, yeah. here's the thing. An attorney overdraws his trust account, and then he says, well, I hired somebody to take care of that for me. I, I didn't know about it. Do you think he's off the hook? Absolutely not. Exactly. Ignorance is not a defense. It may be an excuse, but it's not a defense. Uh, We went through this. This is where the IRS states that it um, designated funds are restricted funds. You can't use it for any other purpose. You can't have a finance committee meeting and decide to change it over. You can't have a business meeting and the church decide to move it over to any other place, regardless. Um, The only way you can move it is by um, you have to contact each person that gave to the fund that the balance is still available 
and request approval to move it to a different place. Or you can go to the inspector general or attorney general and request legally to use those funds for something else and explain why it's not being used for its intended purpose. That's the inspector general, attorney general. I'm sorry. State. Attorney general for the state. State attorney general. And I'll be happy to email it to you. No problem. Okay, this is where we get into some deep stuff. Review the monthly bank statements, okay? When I say review it, I don't mean just look at it. I want you to compare. Review means to compare, analyze. Um, the contributions, ACS, is a major problem that I've seen recently in a fraud examination. The gifts, when you post all your gifts, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it was ACS or if they just didn't set it up properly, but it didn't convert over into the deposit. So the deposit was made that was different than the con contributions. They didn't have it connected to gen general ledger. Maybe so. People needs to people contributions is in the people file, and when you talk about ACS, you're talking about folders, folders, folders. You know, it's multiple folders, mm -hmm. but it's got to be connected over to the general ledger accounting. Mm -hmm. And I bet that's what well, I think it was intentional. Have. But anyway, that's beside okay. the point. Okay, let me ask a Computer software, financial oh, software. Okay. Uh, oh, church, a church financial software in the fact that it's a people uh, trans thing along with financial. With, with payroll and a bunch of other stuff. Okay? Well, it was an acronym for something else. I don't know what it is. It's an acronym for something. Accounting. Accounting, accounting church services. services. Or something like that. I don't know. Software. And yeah. techno technologies. Okay. ACS technologies. That's that. Right. So the bank statement deposits should equal the posted deposits and the posted contributions. All of them should be in line. Okay? The only way that the posted um, deposits, which is general ledger, okay, the only way this would be off is if you made an adjustment during the year, during that month or that period. And then it should be an adjustment, not an actual deposit. But a lot of people will just, well, I don't know how to do adjustments, so I'll just do a deposit or I'll do a check to offset it to make it right. And so you have to, as for me, when I'm analyzing everything, I take that into consideration. Did they know how to do a journal entry? You know, those types of things. So if one of the three doesn't match or balance, you need to do the research to explain why and then fix it. But they need to match. Yeah. And see, mine goes directly over to general ledger. It always matches. I get blue zeros. I get happy. <laughs> Here's an idea. What if? What do y'all do with money that contributions that come in that you don't have a name to attach to it? What does it go under? Do you just not post it to a contribution? No, it goes under loose cash. A loose contribute that's loose. Loose. Contribution loose. It's five hundred. That account number. I've always used the name Anonymous. I create a contributor named Anonymous, and that's where it all goes. I actually have people that don't post it. 
Oh, my. They don't post it as a contribution. It gets deposited. It gets deposited. It gets deposited. Shows up on the general ledger. Wherever they want to put it. With what was deposited, yes. But I mean, is it the right amount but that was taken up? I don't know about that. Because it wasn't counted. It wasn't counted until four days after the time. So, this include people who put um, money in the collection budget, you know, you know just just cash and food, yeah. cash and no uh, envelope no, and, 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 and and currency and don't and don't put their the name on it or anything. And all so those cash and no yeah. name. Mm -hmm. Cash does not synonymous. Yeah. Just, mm -hmm. okay. That way loose cash is probably a way to do it. As a as a forensic auditor I'd have issues with that just because it's like hmm now, what if, what if we, because we have designated baskets of contribution that we guide the congregation to, so this is for uh, 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 general tithes and offerings, this is for building fund, this is for whatever. Mm -hmm. So everything that we compile in that one basket then goes to that said. Under the name Anonymous. You would still say anonymous. If it's the contributor was anonymous, but the deposit would go to general or the building fund okay, or I follow, whatever. I follow, I follow. The contributor would be anonymous. That way you're attaching a name with every single deposit, with every single contribution. Okay. Whether you know the name or not, it's anonymous. You know, If you know the name, then you would put it to that person's contribution record. What would iffy about it's called loose cash? Why would that be? What's the difference between that and I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying that it's not best practice. I'm saying I've never heard that before, and that would seem a little weird. I probably, if I didn't, if I didn't have any discussions with you, if I was looking on it on a sheet of paper, that is something I would mark as a question to ask you about. And that comes through ACS training, national training. They're a people software company. They're not a financial, just like Intuit, payroll, um, um, QuickBooks yeah. wasn't designed by accountants. They are designed by computer experts. So I always just put it at the bottom of my list of contributors. I'd write cash instead of the name. And then under the cash column where I got checks, cash, and designated across there. I'd write $8, dollars $90, right. whatever it was, and then that gets still all in the cash columns of cash adds up. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's fine, but when they, if, if you have a financial software, you would post it to either loose cash or loose money um, or anonymous or something similar, unnamed, unknown. Um, there are situations where the general tithes might be a little bit off, or, you know, like in the GL postings and adjustments and stuff like that. Designated funds should never be off. 
I mean, there shouldn't be any adjustments made in designating. I'm sorry. A void is not an adjustment. It's voiding something. So I don't see it should match perfectly every single time. Um, and we just went over that. Oh, and bank deposits, you have to adjust out on the general ledger if you get a refund from a from a, from a vendor. If you overpaid a vendor and your deposits are off compared to your contributions. That's the reason if, if it doesn't match, you need to research it and explain why. You can say if it's $200 off because you got a $200 refund, then you just state why it's out of balance. Yeah, question with that, uh, uh, with regard to that match. Let's say that you get from the bank that the count that you made was off by $20, $10, 15 whatever. Uh, and you look at and review all of your records and you can't find any difference. So... You take it to the bank and you show them. Okay. You show them. It is it just... I, I mentioned this earlier, but like with checks... Um, you should review your bank statements monthly. And on all the checks, you should review your canceled checks. I know some people don't get canceled checks in their bank statements. That should never happen with any type of business account. You should always get your copies of your canceled checks all the time, every time in business accounts, period. Um, so that you can look at the back of the canceled check. Okay. Sometimes you'll find things like... And when I'm doing a fraud examination, I'll be reviewing, like this one I just went through. I didn't get all these documents from the client ahead of time. They gave me account at online access, so I was able to go to their bank and just look at their bank statements. Thank goodness they had all the canceled checks with back to 2012, right? So I was able to look at them. And so just looking down the line, I start seeing a pattern after about three months. Like, hmm. That looks kind of odd. That looks kind of odd. That looks super odd. They're all the same. What's going on here? So you look at the back of the canceled check. If there's no endorsement on the back of the check, you have the right to send it back to the bank to require them to get the endorsement on the back of the check. If they don't, within three days, they have to credit your account. It may have changed since then, but it, it could be five days. A reasonable amount of time, they have to recredit your account if they can't get the endorsement on the back of the check. So so if, if, he, if, if I wrote him a check and it clears the bank and he says he didn't get it, I look at the bank statement, there's no endorsement on the back of the check, okay, I'm liable because i got to still pay him because he didn't get the money. I can't prove he got the money. So I take that check and say, no, if it's before the next bank statement drops, I can send it back to the bank and say, you're liable if you don't get it, not me. If your totals don't match in the banks, if you don't have the documentation to prove it, then you're out. You're stuck. Absolutely. You're Absolutely. Stuck. That's the reason you copy everything. They're going to be right, I can tell you that. It's illegal to copy cash in whole. So what I do is I take whatever cash I have, I fan it out and fold over the bottom so that you're not copying an entire bill.
because it's federally illegal to do so. So if you fan it out, you can count how much money's there. So you can count how much cash actually went into the bank. 620s or whatever. Fan it out, and you can do them on a whole page. You just keep fanning them out. All these 20s, 10s, 5s. Are they sold? But you can't copy an entire bill. That's why you said fold the... The bottom. Okay, this is one of my cases. So we're going to say the bank balance is the same as the gift report because this should match identically, okay? 2016, gift report shows 252000 for general fund. The GL says two thirty-seven. Something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of... Designated fund called miscellaneous. If it's not general, it's designated. If it's not general, it's either savings, money market, which is savings, or designated. Look at the difference in 2016 for building. That doesn't look like an adjustment, does it? No. y'all look at this for a while because this was extremely interesting. This is just totals. So this is like super easy on an Excel spreadsheet for you to go to the bank, analyze your entire year this year, January through July, put in all your deposits from your bank statement, put all your deposits in from your general ledger and see if they match. Designated should match. There should be absolutely no reason those don't match. Miscellaneous by itself, regardless of the amount of money involved, should give you questions. I also had a des- two designated funds called extra money and extra funds. Our miscellaneous is we have. One class that does that thing for the Broad Street Ministries. And then the other is sometimes a special project that happens like at Thanksgiving or Christmas. But the money that goes into designated miscellaneous, I can, with ACS, label it so I can know what goes to Broad Street and what goes to the backpacks. And it's always there needs to be another name for that. Either Sunday school ministry or uh, love offering. We've got love offering. What is it called? Local missions? We've got church-wide missions or local missions. There needs to be a name to it. Miscellaneous IRS will eat you up on word miscellaneous. 
accountants, CPAs, any auditor will eat you up. They would want you to detail out every single deposit, every single expense because of that. Miscellaneous is a hated word because it's, it's the easiest thing to hide things in. Now, $59 could be an adjustment. It could be an error. I don't think this is an error. Don't think this or this. There's no way you're getting into thousands of dollars. This might be um, a misposting of years, you know, to where it was December and she deposited it in January. Maybe. Just a wrong period type issue. And the bad thing is, with ACS, this and this can be different. Not if they're connected. Like I said, you shouldn't have to choose that. It should be automatic. You cannot unchoose it. No. Well, it should be a dedicated code. system. It's, it's a dedicated phone code system that's attached to the account number. And when I post it, it all goes in, and then it goes right over to General Ledger Correct. I have never seen anything like that. And then, the best thing is... I've been in ACS for 26 years. DOS and... Well, this one came over from DOS. The bad thing is, you not only have this and this, but you also have a bank as well. So if you add in the bank one, the bank one didn't match either. Didn't match either one of those. So, and most people wouldn't think to look there because you're thinking, well, it's, it's all connected. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought it. I thought I was not even doing something that was really, I thought it was a waste of time is what I thought it was. I said, well, let's just see. And that's what I come up with. So guess what? I went back to the previous year. And then I went to the previous year. And then I went to the previous year. And none of them were correct. All of them had the same pattern. Fifteen and sixteen had the worst in miscellaneous extra funds and extra money. But this is something that is so simple to do just in your own church, just to verify that you're accurate. It's a way for the finance committee to see what's going on. Is it possible? What's going, you know, are we getting it right? Is there any chance that there's anything wrong? What system do y'all use? Power Church. That's financial church financial if the system if you got the right system and it's set up correctly and you're using it correctly it should all flow when you input it should go right through to all your reports and you shouldn't shouldn't have these kind of issues do you have a system that you prefer for church accounting i know what's the cheapest quickbooks online is the cheapest <laughs> that's and it works well and it just depends on the church. But power, church. power church is good, but it's, it's more expensive. It's not really 
user-friendly for some people either. Yeah, it's more of a dedicated system if it's set up right. (laughs) But they're pretty good about helping you if you run into Mm -hmm. an issue, uh, they can give you some support. But see, like Power Church and ACS, that handles the counting and the other reports that are necessary for the Baptist Association. QuickBooks does not do that. It's not a people software. So I thought this would be really interesting to to show y'all how simple it is just to do a spreadsheet and compare this to this. So basic you're not even thinking about it. Um, Okay, segregations of duties. The bookkeeper, a lot of my clients, the bookkeeper, financial secretary is also a signer, is also all these other things, and she was the one that would reconcile the bank statements, and she's the one that would present, would prepare the end-of-month financial statements and that type of thing. The financial secretary should only be doing posting the deposits, paying the bills, preparing the information for the treasurer to sign for the um, payables. The treasurer should be doing the bank reconciliation at bare minimum, if not somebody on the finance committee. And the treasurer should be preparing the end of month financial statements for the finance committee to review prior to it going to the church. The more people you have look at something, the less chance you're going to have errors go out. And the last thing you want is for errors to go out to the church because then they start losing confidence in the financial providers. Okay? You don't want that. And I highly recommend using some type of computer software, for financial software, regardless of what it is because manual is not good. Too easy. Too easy. Even spreadsheets. Not good for... I prepare the bank statement reconciliation with SES bank, but then the, the treasurer has to sign off. That's good. At least you've got that second. And when she signs off or he signs off, I hope he's not going, okay, I'm hoping they're looking at it. That's the key. But the good thing is they're signing off on it, so they're taking on the liability. I looked at this. I handled any questions. He also comes in and signs initials every check stuff that I filed. After the check, people in the church sign the checks, I mail the bills and the checks, and he comes in afterwards. And, and That's good. He looks at every one of them. That's good. And he got two of them. Of course, look at the, the, um, the bank statement and compare that to the monthly general ledger report showing all the deposits and checks so that you can you can see that it's matching up. Um, I've had several that don't match at all, period. And nothing was ever questioned, nobody ever saw a bank statement, just the financial secretary. Monthly review of the contributions, comparing and analyzing those against the bank statement deposits. Not just the general ledger, but the actual contribution. So if you have a question about the contributions for that month not matching up, because during the course of time, they could void a contribution or whatever the case may be, 
since in this case they're not connected like they should be, the contributions were not connected to the general ledger, if she voided a contribution, it would never flow over to the general ledger. So it wouldn't show on any reports. Okay? Okay. What time is it? 1220, I mean 224. What time do we go to? 245. Oh, okay. Good. I was about to get scared. 2.30? Oh my goodness, we're running. Okay. Any questions? I guess the key thing is to make sure your software, if you are using financial software, go back and check and make sure that the contributions are matching your deposits. If they're not, find out why, and if it's a software issue, fix it. I'm sure most people haven't even thought about looking at this. Because I didn't even look didn't even think about it until I started this fraud investigation. Because during a fraud investigation, you're not only looking at um, you know money go leaving, you're looking at the contributions, you're looking at the general ledger postings and all of that kind of stuff. Because if you do find something that looks odd. Then you have to determine, is there intent here? Is it intent to deceive? Or is this person actually doing it on purpose first? And then when you find out, yeah, it's happened too many times. Um, disbursements for rounded amounts, 400 here, 600 there, 800 there, 1,000 here, 200 there. Um, reimbursements don't normally happen in rounded numbers. Uh, in fact, it's very rare. So then you start looking, okay, what's the pattern? What's the intent? And then when you see things being, you know, a check written that looks like that person's paycheck, and then you see it posted to contract labor, uh, materials and supplies, kitchen supplies, uh, literature, all these different places, gasoline and oil, natural gas and utilities. Okay, intent's proven. Clearly, because it's distributed, and it's not through payroll. Through the payroll module inside ACS, can you make a payment through ACS without it having, on the payroll side, having an assigned tax ability? So, like, this one's federally taxable, but this amount isn't. Payroll is a separate module, too. And so if that's not connected, then that... But it's connected through the accounting of the accounts. It has, it's... Um... Do you use the payroll module? I do. And the tax codes, like, like 2530, whatever those, those expenses are. And it goes into that, and that matches at the end of each quarter when you pay your taxes. And that's what it wants. Unless you forget to post the the payroll taxes paid and inside ACS and then that becomes a problem. Can you electronically pay through ACS? Yes. You can federal taxes and you state taxes? Yes. Oh. Is that extra added amount? No. Mm -hmm. it's just a <laughs> I'm learning something. See, it's not just for y'all to learn. I can't I can't fathom a financial software not being connected. But 
it'd be way too much work to disconnect it just for that one deposit. <laughs> I, Whatever one you I choose. Do, I, I post, I, I do a separate check for the, the, the amounts into the checking account. I do it online. I pay it online. They take the money out of the checking account. So I make a little check over to the side. So you don't easy. electronically pay straight through ACS? No. But can you do that? I think there is a way. Oh, okay. Just have to, but you haven't done it. I'm go to realm, and I refuse to learn that. I'm going to retire. There's a whole new system fixing it yet. I will tell you, too, that this is also another good way on your designated funds on checks and, and debits from the accounts to check it. Not on your operating account because normally your operating has too many outstanding checks. So that makes it difficult. The other thing with my taxes is I have somebody to come in and do the W-2s and the 1099s. So she double checks me. That's good. Um, because on designated funds if you were to see too many checks too much money going out which it it happened in this particular case say um, the contributions um, the GL postings for designated funds going out was less than the amount on the bank statement that showed going out. So that would make your bank account a lot less. It's also good if you, when you're um, looking at the financials to where you're comparing the deposits to what the contribution records and to the GL posting. When you're actually looking at everything, if you if something looks strange, don't just say, oh, that looks odd and move on. Think about it. Well, that looks odd. Why does it look odd? And, well, this should match this over here. And compare it. If it doesn't, then question it. And keep going until you find a satisfactory answer. Okay, don't just pass it off. Because if you pass it off and you don't ask those questions, then if it really is something that is being done intentionally, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. If it's an error, let me tell you, if, if an error happened one time, it's going to happen again. That's called human nature. And if, you're, if you don't correct that error, then you're going to make the same mistake again until you learn how not to make that mistake. So if you put things into place, like God puts blocks and walls in front of us when He doesn't want us to go somewhere, so it's more difficult to go in a direction that He doesn't want us to go. So, likewise, and that's the way you deter temptation, deter opportunity. Okay. If there's no more questions, I think Tony wanted to go over something. Sorry? 
That's okay. Put I, you on I, the you're spot. That close. Um, I mentioned the training that we have at First Baptist Pooler coming up. Um, that I hope that you'll sign up for. Uh, it's going to have one side financial, one side as legal and uh, protection. So for concealed carry in your church and other stuff, he's going to go over what the laws are and what you are allowed to do. Uh, the ADF person, uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom, will be there to answer your questions about legal issues involving the church, court cases, and so forth. And then I'll teach on finances of the church. And I'll do a tax update and some other stuff in that. And in that conference, I'll some of the things I'm talking about, just so I, I bring them to your attention in case you can't come. Uh, does anybody... I don't know if I want you to show your hands, but go ahead and do that. Does anybody have a parking place reserved for your pastor? Is it marked? It says reserved. Okay. There's a parking lot tax. So churches that have... my spot back. That was my spot. Churches that have reserved parking for their pastor then need to determine the taxable value of that that they're providing to the staff person. It's called the parking lot tax, and, and there's a document that I will provide you that shows you that they've actually stated how you have to determine what that parking lot tax could be. Uh, it also involves churches that provide peach passes for your pastor to drive back and forth through Atlanta. If you provide that, you've got a tax issue that would be on your 990T. So the church normally doesn't file a tax return, but because of these things, you're providing benefits that should be called, counted as taxable and therefore the church pays taxes on them. Um, just bringing those two up because those are just remote. I only had two people raise their hand that their church had a marked parking place for their pastor. But you have to do a calculation. What I tell, told churches when I was doing the training at the beginning of the year, actually last year when this first came out, take the sign down. Everybody knows what, where the sign was. Take it down. Or if it's, if it's painted on the ground, remove the paint. <laughs> Over it. You don't have you don't have to have a reserve parking unless you're lucky. If you're in downtown Atlanta, there's only one spot for your church, and everybody else uses the parking deck. Okay, you're going to have to pay the tax. That's just the way it is. Now, for-profit businesses did this. If they provided their employees parking in a reserve manner, they had to do this in the past. So there's no there's no reason why, except for the new tax law, that they've gone and just taken away that piece. And nonprofits were, and it's not just churches, but nonprofits were exempt from. So, um, would that be for all staff? Yeah, any would, staff. So it, even if you just labeled it staff. Yeah, yeah, all student. staff. It would it it would not be a problem for handicap parking, uh, senior parking, handicap. You know, any of that stuff. You're okay, but when you're reserving it for an employee, that's where the issue comes in. Um, and in downtown Atlanta, quite frankly, there's two or three churches that only have two or three parking places at the church. If they didn't put something there and it was open parking, by the time the pastor got there, that parking place would be taken because it's free. And you've been on church, church property and it says reserved. Yes. How about if you put no parking but you don't? <laughs> <laughs> you can try the no parking. That, that might be a trick, but I, I mean... Good luck with that, because they, they, your your local police may come by and say, "Oh, that's a no parking place. We're going to send somebody over to pull that one in. I'm going to write a ticket." So you know, you don't know. But um, 
the Affordable Care Act also did away with the miscellaneous deduction on your Schedule A. So on your Schedule A and itemized deductions, if your pastor doesn't receive accountable reimbursements, there's no place for him to take off un unreimbursed employee expenses. He is paying higher taxes. I have had calls from pastors this year that their tax bill went up five to $6,000 because their church didn't reimburse them for miles, cell phone, uh, books, or any conferences. So if we don't do those things, there is no place for them. To, in the past, there was people saying, oh, well, we can deduct it on miscellaneous. You still didn't get the full benefit. But I kept saying, they're not getting the full benefit. We need to do it as accountable reimbursements. Now, you don't have a choice. They don't get any of that other option. It's now either accountable reimbursements or no, re, no, um, no place to deduct it. So um, if your church can't afford 55 cents a mile or whatever the mileage rate is that year, you can set yours at 40 or 45 or 50. It, anything's going to help, okay? It's better than him getting nothing because he's got no place to deduct it. It went away. So make sure I'm right. Our pastor who came two years ago did not want to do the accountable reimbursement as our previous pastors had done. He said... I'll deal with it with my taxes. There is no place for him to do it. There's no place for If he's choosing to do it, he's writing it off. You should know that from 2018's filing because yeah. 2018, what it was. But allowed. it sounds like somebody has filed his taxes wrong. That's why. That's that's exactly where I was going. I had two pastors in uh, North Georgia get audited, and their tax preparer took things over to Schedule C. That is not what you do with a W-2. If you have an employee, if they're your pastor, they're supposed to get a W-2. They cannot carry it over to Schedule C. There is no place to deduct it. Therefore, these two pastors, one of them owes significant amounts of tax dollars and interest because he's been doing it for two years. So I've gotten calls where it was, quite frankly, the, the tax preparers doing it wrong for so many years, they never knew that when it, the tax law changed, as she described, because they were doing it wrong, so when they did it wrong again, they were still taking it off, and it was going that, going through their tax software, and because you can't do that, it was then making the IRS say, oh, wait a minute, why do we have this on the w, W-2 over here? Um, the W-2 does not go on Schedule C, and if you have a pastor, and he's not an interim, he's not 18 months or less, you're not looking to replace him, he's supposed to get a W-2. You can all... That's the biggest thing that I'm telling you this year the IRS is after because there's already been cases with small employers out in California where they've gone in and said, you're giving 1099s to people that aren't eligible. And it wasn't churches. It was small small employers. And they said, if they're not supposed to be on a 1099 and you give them W-2, the fines and penalties are going to be far greater than any money or tax you're going to save on Social Security because these people would have had Social Security. Ministers, don't you don't pay their Social Security, so there's really no benefit to you to put them on the 1099. Okay, to make that mistake, but they can still find and penalize the church for putting them on the 1099 because you're helping them avoid tax. And find and penalize you for not filing the W 2. Right, that's what I'm saying. So they, they are going to, you've helped them underreport their tax, you've filed it incorrectly, you've got two penalties, and you're, it's, it's going to be a far greater penalty than what you're saving because you're not paying Social Security on the minister anyway. You're not required to. So uh, you got to get that right. Secondly, the 403B plan, I don't know how many churches are in it. You need to be in the retirement plan through the Georgia Baptist or Southern Baptist. I'm sorry, Southern Baptist. Godstone. But if you're in that plan, you have to have documentation that says you have a plan. And there's a document on their website, 403B regulations. There are some, some small businesses and churches that have seen the random audits. And now they disallowed 
those that were put into their retirement and that was considered taxable income, again, they had to pay taxes on that money. It was no longer tax deferred and the employer got in trouble and had to pay fines and penalties for providing them uh, uh, a tax benefit that they didn't deserve or didn't have. Because that benefit plan wasn't defined and you didn't have one, you can't take money out of their salary or you can't provide money and put it over here tax-free because you don't have a defined plan. So there's a three-page document guys don't provide you. If you're going to somebody else, you better have a defined plan. If they say, well, just pay it to my IRA at the bank, you cannot do that and take it out of their salary. They take it out and they pay it out of their taxable income and they deduct it on their tax return. IRAs are not eligible for tax-free treatment on the churches. So some of these things are very specific things that the IRS has started going after small businesses and I've seen on some pastor's tax returns. And that's just a small part of the tax update that I was gonna share when, when you come to the other event. But I wanted to say those only because I did them last week. Kimberly didn't teach this class last week, and I did them last week because I was trying to teach it and I had extra time. And so I was trying to give them a preview of, of the tax changes. And these are some things that uh, a few people said you had signs for pastors type parking. There's others that say they don't have accountable reimbursements or the pastors ask not to have them. I'm just telling you, these are things that are, uh, the, uh, it's just every church, not not one church, but if they don't hear it, they need to know it, and we need to get the word out. So that's why I try every time I get you to share those things. And a vehicle allowance or book allowance that you pay directly to the pastor. With no accountability. With no, you don't get a log from him to check his mileage and all that kind of stuff where he, he turns it in every week or every month or anything like that and receipts for the books. It becomes taxable income. Yeah. So if don't you just, just pay ignore a car. it on his W-2. If he yeah. doesn't provide you with the proper documentation the to make an accountable reimbursement plan, it goes on federal wages. Yeah, I teach about the accountable reimbursement. That's a good point, Kim. Not because allowance. accountable reimbursement means they turn in an expense report. An accountable reimbursement is not you get $300 a month for a car. $300 a month for a car means he gets it automatically. Just as she said, it's taxable. So that, I've been teaching on that as another reason we needed accountable reimbursements. But again, if church did go back and make it taxable, now there's no place for him to deduct it. So we've got to do accountable reimbursements for the sake of them not paying extra tax. I mean, uh, if, if you don't have an accountable reimbursement plan set up where they turn in an expense report and get reimbursed, I would say that would be what I did before I did raises this year. I would fund an accountable reimbursement plan before I did raises because this is more important than you funding a raise and them not have, still not having a place to deduct those expenses or, or get reimbursed for those expenses. Okay. Oh, and there was one other thing I wanted to go over. Okay. Background checks. You should be doing background checks on all financial services, <coughs> period. And I don't mean just criminal. I mean full background checks. Because if they have liens out there, I mean, that needs to be questioned. Liens that haven't been released and stuff like that, that means they're not paying their bills. If they have two or more bankruptcies, I think that would need to be questioned. Um, because situations occur and you can, you know, things can happen, but bankruptcy doesn't eliminate them from being financial service but it would you know two or more it's 
pretty questionable. Every five years you do a chapter seven, something's wrong. Uh, it needs to be looked into and, and thought about on a spiritual level as well. But that, that really needs to be looked at. If they've got liens or um, any type of arrest for bad checks, you really need to question that. I thank y'all for coming. If I can serve you in any way, my card's in there. Kimberly's cards are over here. Um,